Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awooga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello, and welcome to the Dwarfcast Book Club, the series of podcasts where we reread, discuss, and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels bit by bit. And this time it's our third Last Human podcast covering the first half of the third part of the book, which takes up half the book. It's as simple as that. Uh, it's the first ten chapters of part three, The Rage. I'm Ian Symes, and joining me this evening are Danny Stevenson. Hello. Jonathan Capps. Hello. Ian Symes. Hello. <laughs> Danny Stevenson. Hello. Jonathan Capps. Hello. Ian Symes. Hello. Danny Stevenson. Hello. And Jonathan Capps. Hello. And we've also got a bumper crop of comments from our listeners slash readers who have been commenting over on www.ganymede.tv. As always, it's a good idea to reread the novel first before listening, and uh, we'll do our best to avoid spoiling anything that happens in the last part of the book. And if you've already forgotten what happened last time, here's a little recap. Having discovered that Alternative Lister is imprisoned in Siberia, the crew seek help from a Kinitawawi tribe, who supply them with 12 clapped-out rogue droids and an electricity-killing oblivion virus. However, when Lister tries to pay with sperm, they take offence, and insists he marries the chief's daughter. He does, and is consummated against his will, before he escapes. They head for Siberia and use the virus to wipe out the power, including the artificial gravity. Bow! <laughs> Lister nearly drowns as he's sucked into the now-floating cyber lake, once the rest of the crew restore the power, Lister comes round and is given CPR by himself. Alternative Lister turns out to be a complete psycho, blasting guards for fun and halting their escape to down medicinal alcohol. After they make off in a jeep, Lister knocks evil Lister out and ties him up. He investigates Alternative Lister's belongings, finding Alternative Crichton's dismembered arm clutching some galactic coordinates. As Starbug lands to pick them up, evil Lister throws himself into a campfire to free himself from his bonds and attacks our Lister. Back on Starbug, a badly burnt evil Lister recovers, with the crew blissfully unaware that they've left their own Lister behind, as they follow the coordinates to a derelict terraforming ship. Everyone got that? Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's a bit long-winded, but then <laughs> that's the book. Yeah. That is what that, that, that is how much happened in that last section, that which is, is kind of insane. insane. There's a lot going on. So much. So much going on. Well, luckily, it just all concludes really nicely in this part, and there's no new things introduced at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> And so we start uh, in a different time, in a different location, in a quite different dimension, with John Milhouse Nixon, the president of the world. Don't Nixon me, man. <laughs> it's too early in the morning. <laughs> this section, this like opening chapter, it's like a little prelude to mm. the part as a whole. It feels like the start of a disaster movie. Is anyone else a bit like, maybe this wasn't the case in the 90s, but like this whole, in the future, there'll be a president of the world. Like, it just feels a bit rote at this point. Mm. It's like, there's got to be more interesting things to say than that. Like, I thought, actually, no, it's, it's a more of a Firefly thing. Firefly's background law is that there's kind of three empires, the American Empire, Chinese Empire, and maybe there's a third one. Everyone speaks a mixture of English and Chinese, and, mm. you know, there's kind of more, more interesting than just, in the future, the entire world is America. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Which seems to be what this is. Yeah. Everyone's America. Just literally just transplanting a Nixon in there. <laughs> His great, 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 great nephew. Yeah. Which didn't need mentioning, really. 
Yeah, it struck me as a bit. Yeah, we got we got it. Yeah. Oh, he's like he's like that Nixon. Uh... <laughs> this one has accidentally destroyed the world by trying to detonate a thermonuclear device too close to the sun. Idiot. Here's the thing. So recently, I watched a video about what would happen if we detonated a nuke on the moon, and the short answer is. Not nothing. a lot. <laughs> Basically nothing. <laughs> because the moon is very, 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 very big and nothing we can make nuclear-wise can really do that much to it. That the asteroids aren't doing to it all the time. No. Transplant that onto the sun, which is like many, many it's hundred def- times bigger. It's definitely bigger than the moon. It's definitely, it, it's definitely it's, bigger it's, than the moon. It's definitely bigger than the moon. I'm going to say that no thermonuclear device that could possibly be created by humankind could even tickle the, the sun. Well, thank you, <laughs> Professor Brian Cox. It's massive and great big. Like a, like a big ball of pudding. But yeah, but let, let's, you know, sci fact aside, the idea that, you know, that a president has fucked up the sun. Yeah. And it's got, you know, what is it, 400,000 years left before it will yeah. burn out. It's a couple of hundred thousand, yeah. So this is the reason why they... Now, I don't know if this is confusing anyone else, but what about Garbage World? Yeah. When does Garbage World happen? So this is, this is like, so if we assume that this is basically a couple of decades after Red Dwarf left... Yeah, because mm. apparently Red Dwarf jettisons its black box, even though it hasn't actually. Oh my god, or... there's so much. Like that's a cool idea, yeah. but yeah, again, that doesn't work either. Because mm. Rimmer was resurrected as a hologram to keep Lister sane three, three million, million years, years after, after it went yeah. missing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this is so Garbage World. I think was like many hundreds of years in the future, like because Crichton's a few hundred years from Lister's future, and yeah. Garbage yeah. World. The Garbage World, I think, might have been. A topic when he left, I can't remember. So I think that's still quite a few hundred years in the future. So garbage will definitely happened after. This. Which, it's just yeah, I don't know the timeline of it's not really clear. But I mean, like you know, when when does Red Dwarf ever get shit back? Oh, also, but, I mean, it's been thrown literally out the fucking window at this point. Yeah, and this is yeah. an alternate universe, so all of that can kind of be. I keep forgetting <laughs> that, that this is an alternate universe. Well, is this not supposed to be our universe? No, this is alternate. It's saying well, in a different time, in a, different, in a quite different dimension. But is that just because it's... But our, our crew are currently in the wrong dimension. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, so there's three dimensions here, I think. There is maybe four. Really? I counted six. <laughs> there's the one our crew are from. There's the backwards one. That does not yeah. feature in this... So, so does not feature in this film. There is the <laughs> one that they're currently in... So the, yeah. the, there's the Nixon one, there's the the, the Gelfi Nixony one, and then there's the one that they're currently in. So everyone's out of their dimensions, but our crew and Magruder and all the Gelfs and Lister and everyone are all from their own different one. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to say that the Nixon and Magruder universe isn't our universe. Um, well, Rimmer didn't conceive um, Magruder, didn't conceive his son. Well, we, well, you might have done. Oh, but that, that, I mean, sex with even for Doug, that would be <laughs> that would be a really yeah, badly shot. explained. This is going to get a bit fudgy because, like, when it's saying that, like, <laughs> oh well, Rimmer's meant to be this amazing guy who's like meant to have done stuff. It's like that might well be true for the dimension that yeah. Magruder's from. So we're meant to think that Magruder is <laughs> talking about our Rimmer, and that's the Rimmer who. Magruder was with. Yeah, and but it might not be. It story. might have been an ace. Yeah, it might have been an ace. That's the, that's the thing, but it might have been an ace, but it's 
that's not how it comes across. It comes across as if that's our rimmer we're meant to be talking about here. We're five well, it minutes kind into of, this It kind of has to be our rimmer, doesn't it? Because yeah. it someone makes, that's like, on an emotional sort of character level, there's no point in um, Magruder tracking down and trying to be reunited with a rimmer who a, doesn't someone who him. isn't yeah. his own his own. But he doesn't know that he wouldn't be looking for that he'd be looking for someone who isn't his own father. He goes out looking for his version and what he finds is our version. Yeah, but that make that's true on in a sort of in universe character way that that he is is looking for <laughs> uh, it, yeah. like it works emotionally for him, but for us as the reader, it has to be our rumor that all this affects it has to be our rumor's son, otherwise why should we care? But it isn't it isn't. I mean, cuz here's the story of him meeting Vaughn is that they like she leaves the the relationship ends with her assuming it never happened. She can't assume it never happened when she had a son and the a son that she was telling Rimmer was her father was his father. But then yeah, based on our past form, we're having a debate right now that could well actually be answered in the last part of the book and we've just all forgotten <laughs> happens because that has happened. We will get to a lot of those things in this. We've got two of those instances in this one. Yeah. So we'll, we'll yeah, come we to those. We're five minutes into this dwarf cast and the entire book we're already guessing about in our hands already. <laughs> when we say we're not going to spoil things about future uh, book club, it's dead easy. We've actively forgotten what's going to happen. So. <laughs> So, okay, we're in the first chapter. Right now, Among Us, all Red Dwarf enthusiasts, let's say, we can't agree what universe anyone is in. We can't agree who's fathered who. And it's not our fault. We don't know who's eating this chicken. We don't know who's eating the chicken. We don't know when yeah. the black box was supposed to be ejected and with what information and... And and, yeah, and, and why and it would have in, any information about Rimmer in it when he was only brought back in a holo- as a hologram three million years into the future. That decision was not made when the accident happened. That decision was made after Lister woke up and after he went insane. Yeah. He, yeah. So there's in no the book universe, in, in both the book universe and the TV universe, it's explicitly yeah. stated well, that Rimmer uh, only gets even more back so after explicit in the book universe is yeah. that. Rimmer was resurrected as a reaction to Lister's degradation, whereas in the TV show, it was almost like it was predestined or predetermined that Holly would bring back Rimmer because Rimmer already exists. Yeah, like, yeah Rimmer's not brought back as a, a in order to save Lister so much. It, he was, you know, the decision was made beforehand, whereas in the books it wasn't. So, wormholes. It went through a wormhole. There's a wormhole later on in this chapter, so. That's yeah. what happened. The black box went magnets. through a wormhole. I think it's to do with magnets. Something yeah. to do with magnets. <laughs> I think it's a super fruit. <laughs> I do like when the guy's trying to explain what's going on with, with the sun and everything. And he says, Bob, start again and make it simple. Remember, it's the president you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about this is that it it's there's some slightly ham-fisted politicians a sort of material here but I, I like the complexity of this is that he's like in a complete panic because something he's done has... Um, doomed the sun but it's something that is so far in the future that it, it it's not going to affect anyone at all on earth right now like it, it, they don't even know if the human race would even exist at that point but he's still really like cut up about it and thinks it's going to ruin his career and thinks he's really screwed up whereas <laughs> in this in this day and age if that actually happened like you can imagine it being replaced in the news like the next week 
and it then been kind of forgotten about and it just mm. been a non-issue sort of a thing you know what i mean like it's just something yeah, that's yeah. so abstract well i mean we, we do that anyway right we, we do that with all the rubbish we just throw into the ocean and just go fuck well, it that's for later yeah, that's yeah, for future true. people to worry about fuck it we've got significantly less than two hundred thousand years and that's right and there's yeah okay <laughs> i mean humans won't be you know if you think about that it's like you know like if you if you're worried about the human race that's not going to be that's a non-issue anyway because within you know, four hundred thousand years, we ain't going to be here anyway. Well, it'll last that long. Mm. And I don't Still, mean that. In, I don't. I don't laugh. mean that in a, in a nihilistic <laughs> way. I mean, anyway, that, you know, as our, our speech, he will. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> but yeah, just it just it's like you know, as a species and stuff, that, that there's going to be multiple be other else. things that will happen before that. It's almost tapping into what the political climate was in the 90s, which is like if you breathed wrong, like the the consequences of doing something improper and wrong mm. politically was they were real and tangible and career-ending in the 90s, whereas they're not now at all, even slightly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, like, I've recently kind of started to watch the Chernobyl documentary about what happened with that, and it's like there's now, you know, there's a problem in Russia that's going to last 10,000 years. Yeah. And they've just put a cover on it and gone, yeah, yeah, there's a cover on it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> they're replacing... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, and it's like they're going to have to do something with it, but it's like that's going to be like that for 10,000 years now. There's absolutely nothing they can do about it. So the, the exact same method would be in like, you know, oh dear, the sun's going to burn out in 400,000 years. Shrug, yeah. Let's just hope we invent interstellar travel by then. At the very least, for himself, what Nixon could do is just like try and suppress that news until after yeah. the election. He's not even yeah. talking about he, that. He's doing the noble thing of yeah, finding he's, a he's, He knows that he has to let everyone know, but, you know, like the the smart political thing to do would just just wait until he's got his second term and they go oh by the way just classify it. <laughs> the problem being is the fact that literally that news has already gone out. Oh yeah, yeah, they do cover that. That's, it's Everyone already been knows. leaked, so that yeah. potential scenario is completely fucked from his manicurist. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah, the coffee machine on G deck knows about. It. <laughs> <laughs> but it's um, and the uh, the tweed of scientists as they're described, <laughs> which is a good good bit of nailering. Yeah. And then we've got um, this. Basically, also this section gives the backstory to all the various gulfs and why they were made and why they're there. Yeah, because uh, they mention explicitly the snug giraffe was one of their sort of early mistakes that they made <laughs> when they were doing it. And you've got the multiple professors Longman, Longman and Longman, uh, which is not a, not a lawyer's firm. <laughs> <laughs> It all, it all starts to feel a little bit hitchhikers-y in the same way that Garbage World did. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where you, you, it's that social satire of extrapolating the things that politicians and, and whatnot do today and, and sort of seeing it through to its logical conclusion in a planet-destroying way. Well, I'd rather have uh, this Nixon as the president of Earth than Zaphod Beeblebox as the president of Earth. <laughs> <laughs> He's just this guy, you know? And actually, this isn't the last... Um... Adamsism that we're going to get. I mean, there's going to be a piece of furniture stuck in a door shortly. <laughs> it's quite, uh, it reminds me of Dirt Gently. Is it International Debris said there's a. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, it's Pete Part 3 said it. Said uh, how Sibinsky, who operates as Basil Exposition for this chapter, is not described <laughs> at all, either in appearance or personality. Well, we're told instantly that Sibinsky's bodyguard has a clean, crisp face and short yellow hair like an over harvested field of wheat. <laughs> Gee, I wonder which of these characters will immediately disappear and one will play a prominent role. <laughs> <laughs> over harvested field of wheat is a good, um, good line. Like a really short, like really cropped crew cut 
and that's it kind of looks like that kind of like guile style haircut. It's like, oh, the guile, yeah. <laughs> I can't think of you mean, but the guile style is. <laughs> <laughs> My granddad used to have that army cut hair sticking up, but then like yeah, flat, yeah. flat top. Yeah, it's it's something you bring to mind if you think of um, American Army General. Speaking of Magruder and his appearance, uh, Milo Scat uh, said, "I'd like to hear some comments on the depiction of Michael Magruder in those DJ videos." And this always inherently amuses me. That this is now like when you Google Michael Magruder, it comes up with pictures from Dimension Jump nineteen. And it was the opening ceremony, which was written by Alex Newsom of the fan club, but it was basically included Magruder as a character on pre-filmed inserts that the people on the stage reacted to. And so we got largely because, well, partly because he, he's funny and does comedy, but also because he has blonde hair like a field, like a field of overcropped shredded wheat. Um, shredded we wheat. We got my friend. <laughs> shredded wheat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> running through those fields of shredded wheat <laughs> mainly because Theresa May was in his hair <laughs> we got um, my friend Henry Imbert to play him and so he sort of shot it himself in Glasgow because he'd moved to Glasgow by that point as we were planning to film it together he sort of shot it himself against green screen and made himself a little space core uniform by wearing a blue shirt and putting bits of cardboard on it it's in so the good. shape of sort of <laughs> the stripes and stuff. And because there was a couple of screen grabs sent round in the newsletter, that is now being used as the official image of Michael Magruder. <laughs> when you Google it, it's the first thing that comes up because Thanks it's used wiki, on yeah, Red Dwarf, the tongue-tied yeah. wiki, reddwarf.fandom.com. So yeah, our comments on that are... Um, it was us that made that happen, so we can't really comment on it. <laughs> we created him. <laughs> we created Magruder. I mean, we linked to one of his videos in the last one because we, we reference him with um, a lot with, I think it's a super fruit. But yeah. um, in the show notes, there'll be a link to Henry's massively undersubscribed YouTube channel. So yeah. take a look. Yeah, He's one of the funniest yeah. people I know. He's got funny bones as Henry. He's the second funniest person I know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't count knowing yourself. Behind me. <laughs> Who was that guy you used to do comedy with? I can't remember his name. So just... <laughs> Ian someone, Ian yeah, Lee. Yeah, Ian Lee. Oh, yeah, that was it, yeah. Ian Partner. <laughs> <laughs> so they do introduce the idea of the viruses as well, the programmable and genetically engineered viruses. It's quite mechanical, isn't it, the way they bring everything together, but it is quite satisfying as well. The extension of the viruses... It's a good example of like taking something from the show and allowing it to stretch its legs a little bit. I, I like that there's just, and it ends up later on, there's just been just tons and tons of these things, like all just doing various, like often mundane jobs. Um, it's a really cool concept and one that almost feels yeah. a little bit grounded as well. Like, you know, you can imagine, you know, things being condensed down into viruses for like terraforming purposes and like, you know, growing and peeling potatoes and broccoli and yeah, peeling potatoes. <laughs> yeah, fucking hell. <laughs> That's what that's the yeah. programmable viruses. That's that's Doug's, yeah, that's yeah. Doug's idea. I had completely forgotten about that. Caps has just said that he finds Pete Part One a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that on the previous dwarf cast, he said that there's a joke in Time Wave, which is his favourite joke in all of Red Dwarf. <laughs> all of comedy, I think I said. <laughs> it still doesn't really explain why they're so useless, the Gelfs, or like why they're so kind of thrown together. But like, just just giving them a giving them an origin. Um, which also, uh, by the way, supports my my 
statement that this is an alternate universe because they say that the Gelfs are from an alternate universe and here they well the they've already given an, an origin for the Gelfs though well yeah it's exactly this isn't it they're terraformers no no it weren't it was about Spore oh in Better Than Life that was Better Than Life yeah yeah <clears throat> in the previous novel that was for Pod so maybe yeah it is alternate Universe Unless there's just stuff. Yeah. I think I think you've got these you've got these people in one alternate universe. You've got our crew in another. They both go through the Omni Zone and both end up in this asteroid field in a third alternate universe. I just don't know why it needs to be like why they need to combine animals to make it work. Why can't you just if you've you obviously can clone humans? So, well, then they'd be a bit too close to the simulants. Although it is weird. Uh, later on, we get an appearance from the simulants, and I honestly can't remember whether they're Chekhov simulants or not. Whether they turn up, I think they probably do. But like, yeah, you have to kind of make them weird and outlandish because they're the alien replacements. Mm, that's true. But then it's kind of unimaginative to have them just be chimeras, basically, really shit chimeras. Anyway, yeah, Dave mentions how does Magruder know about Rimmer being revived as a hologram? I think you could just about explain that as that the black box, out of happenstance, went through a wormhole, maybe. Or you send off a black box and it can still receive transmissions from the ship. They're really, really, really long-range yeah. Wi-Fi. Long, long, long range. Well, that's true, yeah. Maybe it's just very expensive technology, so yeah. If you think about the astronomical odds of this stuff happening, it's kind of that's where you you have to kind of suspend your disbelief a fair bit. You know, the, you have a, a black box which happens to land from when it crashed right into the earth they found it and it tells Magruder how he you know how his dad died or whatever and then like you know he then yeah. they find him and then the, the, you know like the, the plot the chance of this stuff is just off the charts well there's two potential things there one later on in this book we do get introduced to uh, a device that makes astronomical odds happen also alternative explanation borrowing from the end of better than life holly did it <laughs> yeah, yeah, some magic. <laughs> Holly did it with some sort of magic. But they do discover the luck virus on the Mayflower, not before. Wibbly wobbly timey wimey. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it is largely bollocks. This book. <laughs> That's the There's question. a lot of stuff like this that uh, that you can try really hard to contrive an explanation for, but there isn't really one. Um, and this, a lot of it is, is just yeah. There's a lot of this book that is designed to be explained more than just you know it's meant to be a self-contained adventure. I think that's yeah. Uh, that's been yeah. That's that's the generous view. Yeah, <laughs> it t- it gets itself tied up in nuts at times. Continuity's just... never been a thing in Red Dwarf. We know this. We know that they don't care about what, as long as the story's interesting. They don't really care about how they get there. Yeah. If it makes it, if it makes the story more interesting, they'd rather do that than try to make it work and have to fudge in the details to make it. There's one thing to disregard previous adventures, previous iterations, mm-hmm. in order to pursue a story. But when it doesn't make sense in and of itself, then it's a problem. Like there is no logical way, without time travel being involved, that Magruder could know anything about Rimmer yeah. and Red Dwarf, and no way that Red Dwarf's black box could come back to Earth with that amount of information on within the lifetime of Rimmer's offspring. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work. And that's the fundamental thing that I realised well, about four or five pages into this part of the book. None of this makes any sense whatsoever. <laughs> there is no way that any of this book could happen. There's no point in the rest of this book. Oh well. Unless something fundamentally different happened with the Red Dwarf in this universe, 
if you subscribe to the fact that uh, it's see that's the thing I'm still not 100% convinced that we're in Magruder's universe isn't our universe mm. you'd think in a book that's dealing with multiple universes and very complex sci-fi concepts that it would be crystal clear on the things that it needs to be crystal clear on yeah <laughs> such as this anyway anyway yeah let's move on we get a little glimpse of Lister and his cyber hell again uh, which is very better than lifey yeah in the way that he's trying to make himself a day-to-day life and have a job and a routine and stuff like that. Specifically, the depiction of it with like neon billboards everywhere and the sort of tacky horribleness of it yeah. is Pottersville from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> yeah. It's the it's the alternate Bedford Falls when everything goes to shit. And so that works as a as a parallel to Better Than Life. Yeah. So here's a question. We've gone through a bit of a journey with this. So like the prologue for this very book yeah. We read it as, oh, that's our Lister. And then in the next episode, we went, oh, actually, that was Evil Lister. Isn't that strange that we're inside Evil Lister's head? And now we get this. And w- this chapter says to me that every single time we've seen Lister in Siberia, even approaching Siberia in the trial, everything has been yeah. our Lister. Yeah. 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 That's how uh, little yeah. we remember from this book, everyone, is that we have gone <laughs> through three different. <laughs> iterations <laughs> no yeah it, it this seems to confirm all that yeah i think like maybe it's i think that's the journey we were supposed to have gone on really yeah. it's our fault for not because this isn't the first time we've read this book and that we've forgotten all this yeah but as a first reading you're supposed to think oh what's lister doing here oh it wasn't our lister oh it was our lister after all yeah which is cool i yeah. think I think it's cool and not messy. Um, is this cool? But but it, it, it's left unsaid, isn't it? I mean, it could have been alternate Lister and this could be ours. And it just so happens that our Lister has the same hell as the other Lister. And that he also defended himself on a Rangu 12. Yeah. And was also in a prisoner transport ship. Yeah, which is explained here um, in this chapter. It says that a lot of time has passed. Like we, We're dealing now with a time jump of quite a few months. Yeah. In the next chapter, they're in deep sleep, and he actually went back, had his trial, and then in that time, Siberia was rebuilt, and then he was shipped back. So that is, yeah, that's then the prologue, him getting shipped back, and then getting put into Siberia, and then his first experience of hell. And again, like all the bits where we thought, oh, this feels kind of normal, like a normal Lister, not like an evil Lister. Yeah, yeah. It turns out it was. Yeah. <laughs> it does a lot of heavy lifting, both of these chapters, in sort of filling in some backstory. So it tells us that the justice system is deliberately unfair because they want to trap innocent people. So the whole minority report style thing is, you know, they're aware that it's bollocks, which makes it sort of better, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the, all the stuff about the terraforming the other planet and forming a gestalt entity from prisoners and they've done it before and because the prisoners were all angry and evil then the planet was angry and evil but now they're going back it's so difficult to get your head around yeah. it's really heavy going and it's just i it took me a couple of reads <laughs> to to sort of figure out what was going on especially with this second gestalt yeah the the only setup we've had for this is we know that the justice system is rigged. Mm. Well, we haven't had any hint that there's any sort of terraforming has been happened or that they've been, or that is a concern for them or, or anything like that. You're right, it is just a big info dump. And actually, like reading it through today, I found it a bit easier to get my head around, but I think that's just the residual memory of it from the past. Um, yeah. I've just about, you know, just about understood what it's trying to do, but like just dumping all that in one, one conversation, not even one chapter. Mm. 
think it's mentioned a bit later on by someone is that what are they thinking that incorrectly imprisoned innocent people are going to be a good mental force for them to terraform a planet you know that's ridiculous that they're not also going to be bitter and (laughs) twisted from the fact that basically completely innocent people have been chosen for death essentially yeah Pete Part 3 actually says yeah why do these nutters think that people who have been wrongfully imprisoned for months (laughs) uh, is the best recipe for a new gestalt entity and I agree also our Lister is guilty of what is in Siberia 4 because alternative Lister was innocent of um Eco smuggling, uh, emo smuggling, emo smuggling was, yeah. where they um, take <laughs> early noughties goth music, and, <laughs> um, which, which, by the way, isn't even the crime that um, we were told he was in, arrested for earlier in the book. Was it not? I don't think so. No, um, there was a, accused of murdering and all the rest of it. There was definitely murder as part of it. When Crichton was talking to the regulator, oh yeah, it was called it was like one of the things was he, he was guilty of my own murder or something. And that's he right. Yeah. Me. Yes, yeah. That's true. Okay, so that's bollocks. Get your but all, but <laughs> ignoring that, our <laughs> uh, lister was charged for doing the breaking yeah. and destroying Siberia and fucking the lake and everything. Uh, that's what it said on the charge sheet. And he is guilty of that. They keep not mentioning it, but they did kill hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, most of whom <laughs> would have been innocent, as we are told in this. Their escape yeah. attempt killed many people, but we're still not getting that mentioned in the book. Many Bothans died. Many Bothans died, to bring you this information. I've just realised from looking through our comments document that Pete Part 3 made that exact point that uh, Goodlister is guilty and so he shouldn't be on this programme. Oh well. Uh, Dave says of all the 80s and 90s references in Red Dwarf, an encyclopedia salesman might just be the most dated feeling of all. I feel very old having known what an encyclopedia salesman is. I only really know them from like comics and sitcoms. used to have people in... Uh, shops stop you and try to get you to buy Encyclopedia Britannicas. Right. So it's and like, they would get you to buy like the first volume. And it's like, well, if you want the rest of the world's knowledge from B to Z, then you'll have to sign up for this. It's a bit like Avon. It's sort of Avon, or like those sort of multi-part, um, those part multi-part magazines. magazines. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where you get the first edition and a free binder for 99p, and each subsequent issue is £14. <laughs> £14, and like, when you're done, you're about three grand out. Yeah. <laughs> We give you eight aardvark for free, and uh... <laughs> I remember I had one of those for um, a building out a dinosaur skeleton. It was pretty good, actually. We completed the whole thing, so it can't have been that ruinous. We also get introduced in this this bit the symbiomorph, mm-hmm. yet another new type of gelf. Technically, a whole new thing to Red Dwarf, but it feels like uh, it's a mix between a polymorph and a pleasure gelf, yeah. essentially. Yeah, it's used morph. for. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it is a new concept, but at least the character we get introduced to has an easy to remember and pronounce name, so we're not getting too lost within, you know, the kind of the nonsense, right? Right? Yeah. (laughs) Before we started recording, we were just idly mentioned the name of this character. Me and Capsi both said Retrocrebin, and that to me feels like the way to say it, Retrocrebin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Danny pointed out that if you look at the way it's actually written down, it's absolutely the nothing the like that, that at all. Reketrobin. I think me and Ian say Retrocrebin because I believe Craig Charles says that in the audiobooks. 
That's the thing. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I don't think I don't think Craig says that's, that the that's her anglicised name, <laughs> Retro Krebin, <laughs> Captain Krebin. And all you have to do to make that <laughs> work is just change all the vowels around <laughs> and all the consonants. Well, yeah. I mean, that, one, to be fair, that's what anglicising names. Is. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I move that we we um, simplify this and just call her um, Rita, which is short for Rita's cabin. Rita's cabin. <laughs> Okay, so Rita's cabin. She assumed the form of a news agent and settled in a Manchester suburb. Does that explain Back to Earth then? Oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. does actually. Yeah, she, <laughs> okay. yeah, that whole thing is she's just morphed into Granada Studios. Street, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why you get all the Blade Runner stuff happening later with all the neon signs and the yeah. adverts and everything. Back to Earth is set in cyber in Lister's cyber hell. Back to Earth is the sequel to Last Human that no one asked for. <laughs> I mean, it very much is. Yeah. <laughs> like, in that it's uh, <laughs> not as good as Red Dwarf, but interesting. <laughs> it's like an alternative weird weird version of Red Dwarf that's not quite what anyone wants. But that is a savage. A savage thing to say about an actual episode of Red Dwarf is that it's not as funny as Red Dwarf. <laughs> basically, saying that it isn't Red Dwarf. No, it's not. Back to Earth is a pro- is a program about Red Dwarf, yeah, okay. as opposed to an episode of Red Dwarf. Fair is the way enough. I see it. And the, the FAQ on the official site, as we saw, we, we we were having a look around the other day, still maintains that it's not Series Nine. So. Officially yeah. speaking, Series Nine just literally doesn't exist, which is a an in, a very interesting. Um, it's a very universe thing for thing to do for a production company to just deny the existence of an entire to, series to mess with their own numbering system for the sake of a joke <laughs> yeah. is like perfectly yeah. Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf is the franchise with no ninth series and two third books. <laughs> they've always had a blind spot with nines. Yeah. Well, funnily <laughs> enough, so does so does Windows. So you know, it's a marketing thing, isn't it? Tens better yes, than nines. Yes, that's just yeah. didn't bother with it. I heard that there was a reason for that is that Windows ninety whatever is identified as a version when you when you're writing code you say if version has starts with a nine then do this because it's one of the nine ninety versions which has to ha- run things in this way because it's based on DOS and um, if they'd had a Windows nine um, that would have completely fucked a load of software because it would have <laughs> triggered all these conditional statements that have been written over the last decade. Oh. Bit of a sidetrack. I need to find where the description of sort of the symbiomorphs kind of default. I thought it was like a black and white sort of checkered, yeah. almost like a you know like a transparency in Photoshop. Oh, black and white, slight, lightly matrixed humanoid shape. Okay, so sort of like just sort of like like a little bit like um, Terminator. You could say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if by a little bit you mean a lot. Like, no, just the, the idea of just like like no specific kind of features and anything, just kind of yeah, like swirling, yeah, kind of like a raw shark, just constantly all over the place. Which is interesting because yeah, that's, that kind of feels more realistic in a way, but less funny than uh, the pleasure gulf's natural form of a big sweaty green blob. Yeah, yeah, and and also the changing being like dip, 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 like just sudden changing, like the polymorph does as well, of just like you know, yeah. kind of a comedy change rather than morphing. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it is very sort of Terminator 2, I guess, the T-1000 style of, of morphing, but you can definitely see it, um, whether or not that was in Doug's mind or not, but you can see how a, a mid-90s CG route would uh, would do this. Would think it of, feels yeah. like it's in that era. 
for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's the most famous bit of CG in film around that time, apart from maybe Jurassic Park, but like that, you know, Mm. that was kind of like the poster boy CG. Yeah, CG effects was Terminator Two and Jurassic Park. Chapters two and three sort of lead on to each other. There's also chapter three introduces the Dingo Tang. Yeah. Just because we needed more, <laughs> and that on this one they don't even bother to say what. <laughs> like I assume it's a dingo and an orangutan. Yeah, and I think they mention like it has it describes some of its features, but it doesn't bother to say that it's a cross between a dingo and an orangutan. So I guess you know it gives us some credit as readers to sort of fill those <laughs> yeah. blanks in. It seems like every type of gelf has kind of like preordained job as well. Yeah, which is a bit, um, a bit incompetence actually. Oh, I see. No, you mean colony, something like all dingo tangs are guards. <laughs> yeah, all yeah, dingo tangs yeah. are guards. All dollar chimps are armed guards. Right. Or like yeah. prison guards. Um, yeah, etc. It's like they were built for specific purposes. Like if you've got like a orangutan with kind of big arms, they kind of strong arm people, and they've got, you know, <laughs> yeah, they've, they've, got they've got the skills, you know, for the specific jobs. Good at smacking prisoners around, and um, <laughs> good at. Smacking sex slaves around as well, apparently. Yeah, yeah. The relationship between Rita's cabin and Decky, yeah, Decky the Dingo Tang is really horrible. But it's you're supposed to think that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's not like it's a situation where, for example, Cat is talking about someone's droopy ass titties. For, for example, example. <laughs> Lister's relationship with Rita's cabin, I like. Yeah, it's very list. I like her being defiant. And like the stuff of her turning into a sofa so that she can't be shoved through the door yes. is good, but uh, it's a very listery thing to sort of empathise with her and support her and like not want to take advantage of her, mm. unless he needs to take advantage of her in less bad ways, but still needs to use her. So he has a very yeah. similar relationship with her as he does with Crichton. Yeah, you know. And also the fact that the way that he uses Crichton here, where he may, he yeah. asks her to turn into Crichton, uh, that's his go-to. I think that absolutely nails their relationship. And a lot of the conversations he has with Crichton, it's stuff that he knows and he just needs Crichton to reassure him that he's correct. Yeah. Yeah. That absolutely nails yeah, the Crichton really relationship. Mm-hmm. Every now and then, Doug really does drop this kind of amazing insight into his own characters. He's done it very mm. recently as well with Promised Land. Yeah. Like hundred percent makes sense. It's like we're finding Lister again. Like ever since he's woken up from his deep sleep and he's been getting his memories back, it doesn't feel like we've kind of had Lister back. Had to deal with an alternate version that's evil and mm. everything, and now all of a sudden we've got that character back who's got the heart and like, you know, the the the, the empathy and is smart, clever, but you know, in, insecure and needs you know assurances and stuff like that. It's like finally two-thirds of the way through the book we've we've got him um which is nice because we need that contrast between him and the evil lister so just in time <laughs> our main character has shown up <laughs> uh we also get the revelation here that in the evil dimension um rimmer and kachansky are a couple yeah which is odd i'd forgotten that as well but it does make sense like it removes the uncomfortable feeling that i think everyone would have had when they were like so Lister was with Kachansky and he still murdered like I, I obviously know that that doesn't preclude anyone from murdering someone I'm listening mm. to a podcast about O.J. Simpson at the moment but um, <laughs> it almost makes you feel a little bit better about the fact that Lister's kind of like this, the evil Lister is like this lone psychopath and that you know Kachansky didn't at least have that level of heartbreak to deal with <laughs> of like her partner being the one to shoot her 
I don't know. It was her and Rimmer. We've all murdered women that we're not sleeping with. So well, yeah. that's fine. No, I mean, 100% not my point. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> for some reason, it feels less grim. I don't know. Yeah. Um, this evil Lister is a sociopath who can't form meaningful relationships. relationships. Yeah. Okay, th- that's what it does then. It removes almost an inconsistency because you'd be like, would he really have had a relationship? But then I guess psychopaths yeah, would he have killed? can do that. Yeah. They can fake it, you know. But he's a sociopath, which is different. Um, but I don't know enough about the distinction to really talk about it. <laughs> Not me. No. Okay, so according to Google, the distinction is that psychopaths tend to be more manipulative, can be seen by others as more charming, lead a semblance of a normal life and minimise risk in criminal activities. Sociopaths tend to be more erratic, rage-prone, unable to lead as much of a normal life. So that does sound like more that evil listed from... It does. It sounds like a mixture, really. Though, yeah, yeah. I mean, the... obviously, I think psychopaths can have sociopathic tendencies, and sociopaths can have psychopathic tendencies. So, the, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. n- it's not a binary thing. It's definitely we're getting know. ahead of ourselves a little bit. But like, yeah, his his medical report mentions the charm, but everything else sounds like a sounds like a sociopath yeah. based on that description. Mm. And I can very much imagine that Doug did this similar research <laughs> in '95 when he was writing this. A few amusing and interesting points in the comments. Stillianananananananananides. Doug's obsession with initials is apparent again with Lister's question to the Yakdung of should I call you YD? Bizarre. That was something that we picked up on in a previous yeah. uh, podcast, didn't we? Milo Scat says there's a character in Big Finish's Torchwood continuation audio is called Or, who's a shape-shifting former sex slave who's represented in monochrome on the covers. I wonder if Rita's Cabin was an inspiration. It doesn't say Rita's Cabin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Torchwood is the sort of thing that it draws inspiration from other sci-fi that is good, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, chiefly Doctor Who. <laughs> chiefly Doctor Who, but like, you know. It feels like it's a trope, but at the same time, I can't think of that many examples of it. Pete Part 3 says, Retro Cabin always reminded me of Marsha, a shift-shaping prisoner from Star Trek Six. Right. There's definitely a thing of sexy lady shapeshifters. Yeah, yeah sure. But yeah, them, the the darker side of them being like exploited um, for sex mm. in that way is probably a very late eighties, nineties sci-fi thing. You just wouldn't you wouldn't have got that earlier on because that's when sci-fi was starting to be commenting on mm. society. You know, a little bit more. It's, it's one of those things that makes us feel a bit like a good sci-fi story, but not particularly Red Dwarf. Like it's it's not the sort of thing that Red Dwarf would normally tackle. I'm not saying it mm. it's done badly. I think he, he he does this character quite well. And like you say, like the, the relationship with Lister, it makes you feel good that you know that this symbiomorph has kind of fallen randomly into Lister's life, and that that is good news for her. You know, it's just you know it's a nice moment. Yeah. Even though obviously she's had an awful life. But um, it still like, it just adds to this feeling that this is a re- this is a good sci-fi novel that is maybe a few rounds of editing and a, an entire transplant of characters and setting um, away from being a truly good book. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. this isn't Red Dwarf. You know, make this your colony and correct your inconsistencies, and it's great. General agreement in the comments though that this section is a good one um, with the uh, particularly the Lister and Crichton conversation. Yeah. Dave says it's a bit Camille, a bit polymorph with a touch of Legion sprinkled on top. Camomorphian or Pologil. Legion's a really good shout because it's the about the subconscious picking up things and then allowing that to surface. Um I guess that isn't yeah. really a Legion thing, but it's 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 a really Well it it feels like it because of that sort of moment at the end of Legion where it's 
Red Legion turns into Crichton mm. and has a basically a conversation with himself. Yes. That's why it feels like that. Yeah. And it is a kind of thing of like Lister is able to extract the personalities of, or rather, Retro Krebin is able to extract all the personalities and traits of his crewmates from Lister's mind. So Lister's absorbed them all, and within his brain, which I guess is true for all of us, you have versions of all your mm. friends and acquaintances and everyone in a bit like a Legion style gestalt mm. that can be plucked out one by one. There's a very good Disney Plus series called WandaVision that uh, explores similar things. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming most people that have listened to this watched it because <laughs> it seems like everyone's watched it. And if you haven't, I fucking haven't do it. Ace. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. I've watched Chucklevision. <laughs> and finally, for this chapter, Clem says it turns out Mr. Rat wasn't the first giant rat in Red Dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut away from this uh, to chapter four and we could go back to the Mayflower and basically see what happens there, see uh, Magruder on his little tour of duty. <laughs> Stillian Ida is not hiding his opinions of Michael Magruder as a character here. <laughs> <laughs> oh good, Michael Magruder is back again. The writing here feels incredibly heavy-handed. Quote, he'd never be the man his father was, but damn it all to hell, no man could be. And the constant repetition of these sentiments is uh, really tedious and unsubtle. Like, we, we know what he's been set up for. He's been set up for the meeting. And just, yeah, it doesn't really need to be repeated the mayflower because it's got all these gelfs on it um it's also got simulants Mm -hmm. which have got a little origin story here they've also got scutters as well (laughs) because it's one of the things magruder mentions as he's going around so this feels like of all the conversations we've been having recently about a red dwarf expanded universe and and things that might fly out of one's budski this feels like it's from and Red Dwarf Expanded Universe because it's got all these icons of Red Dwarf and all these different bits but completely different crew, yeah. completely different ship completely different mission. Yeah, It's kind of cool Yeah. There's a mention as well of um, a nose cone collecting space currents in exactly the same way that Red Dwarf does for fuel so yeah. that brings to my mind, I mean I think the ship is described a bit later on but in my mind it, it almost feels like a slightly kind of twisted or just different Red dwarfy shaped sort of thing. It's still got mm-hmm. the distinctive nose cone, but it's a bit more sleek and a bit more. Yeah, maybe a little bit more futuristic. It's a few generations in the future. Yeah, and was designed for long haul travel rather than Red Dwarf is supposed to just pot around the solar system. Yeah, and and go from planet to planet. So it was designed to go the millions of light years with the old cliche of um, human survivors on a multi generational. Arc going into suspended animation in between jaunts to yeah. save the future and all that, but it all goes wrong. <laughs> so it says it was his tour of duty. Every ten thousand years, each of the marines was assigned a tour of duty. I don't understand how that works because he's saying every ten thousand years, each of the marines was assigned a tour of duty. This was his fifth. One of them. Someone else it. gets woken up. Yeah. Oh, every ten thousand years. Oh, okay. Right, so, yeah. so just ten thousand years go by. Someone wakes up, does a thing, yeah. goes back to sleep. Yeah. Every ten thousand years to check it. That's incredibly. That's that's a risk. <laughs> ten thousand years is a long time for something to go wrong. Yeah, something could have gone wrong and it been fixed, and you would have never known about it in ten thousand years. <laughs> yeah, and they've all been basically made immortal. So you'd think they'd like you know be awake for a few hundred years, or maybe they'd just go mad if they were doing that. But yeah, but the fact that yeah, the fact that something's gone, the fact there's cobwebs everywhere. I was like, well. It's 10,000 years. Of course, 
So where are the uh, Scots? I suppose the Scots should be doing all the job, but yeah. The Scots should be doing that, yeah. And I guess, I mean, yeah, they are dealing with kind of an unprecedented situation here, you know, like, you know, they can't know for sure that the Scots are going to be able to keep everything going or that the power is going to stay on, because obviously the power mm. doesn't stay on, and that's the problem. They must be future generation scutters as well because the scutters on red dwarf were not <laughs> clearly not designed to last that long <laughs> like, operationally no, no. and be able to be trusted on their own to do everything they're very dispensable yeah <laughs> especially in the novels <laughs> <laughs> so yeah all the gelfs and simulants rebelled what, what was it there's a power failure some of them got out of deep sleep and then they tricked magruder and took yeah. over the ship as a result yeah, yeah. yeah. So the symbiomorphs and the simulants working together, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And I honestly can't remember whether the simulants come up again later on in the book. I have no idea. Like, are they just here for this, or do they come up later? I can't remember. Are they are they Chekhov simulants? Yeah, are they Chekhov simulants? <laughs> I mean, not that I would suggest that Doug would use such a uh, such a technique overly <laughs> in his book. <laughs> but yeah, I honestly can't remember. But it is like because people are three mentions. Um, is the appearance of the simulants here the sole reason Rob went with Agnoids for backwards spoilers? Um, mm. Maybe just a different name for what is essentially the exact same thing, right? Well, there's also there's the Homo sapienoids from the movie, yes, which we know about because of various tiny bits of publicity that happened, like the sort of synopsis yeah. that came out fly, in yeah, about yeah. 2003, which were, from what we can tell, essentially simulants, yeah, but with a different name. In Trojan. Uh, which is obviously much later than this, but uh, they talk about the simulant uprising, that the simulants were essentially mechanoid types at one point, but then yeah. they they overthrew their human masters, and that's kind of what happens here. Yeah. yeah. Because the simulants are bred to survive, and like for their own species' survival above everything else. They're kind of like the Daleks. Yeah, yeah. they are a bit like, yeah, but, but with humanity thinking that they can wield them somehow. I mean, I guess yeah. that happens with the Daleks as well. But that always seems to go wrong, you know, almost like nuclear yeah. weapons. is just something you can't control, but I guess is necessary for future survival. But although I'm not entirely sure what the advantages of, of them existing even are. Maybe they had a different idea at the time and shipping them off in this in this ship was a good way of getting rid of them. I don't know. Yeah, there's one thing about this chapter that really bugs me. I only noticed it this time around, but I kept noticing it over and over again. So when each species came out of deep sleep, um, Magruder's going around and says, first of all, he says um, that the Dolo chimps had been reanimated, i.e. no longer in deep sleep. Every subsequent time he goes to one of the uh, deep sleep units or one of the pens, he says they've been (laughs) de-animated, which is the opposite of what's happened. (laughs) Three times it says de-animated when it should say reanimated, and only once does it say reanimated. That's bizarre. It's really weird. Have you got a first edition? I've got. I was there only ever a first edition. <laughs> I have a first edition paperback. Yeah, okay. Well, you'd think all the corrections would be done by then, wouldn't they? Yeah. Very strange. There's clear editing issues here, but that's. I mean, it starts to get a bit silly, to the yeah. point where you think, did did anyone edit this book? When you're saying the exact opposite phrase of the one you mean. Yeah, exactly. And then there's, you know, an example later on of a paragraph contradicting itself. Before we get there, chapter five, we're back to Lister and Rita's cabin. Rita's cabin. Rita's cabin. Um, (laughs) I was like disappointed that it kind of cuts out the bit where Lister persuades Retro Krabin to join him. Mm. Because the previous chapter with them, chapter 
three ends with Crichton saying you need to uh, turn her into yourself so that she can see things from your point of view and then it cuts to them escaping We they miss out yeah. that bit where it happens which is a bit of a shame I think I guess you don't need to like we can easily fill the gaps like we know that it's a plan that will work it's just it's sometimes it would be nice to see a double lister scene at this stage you know? I just like the idea of it being really quick as well like he just says turn to me for a second and you'll get it and then she goes oh and then oh right it. so that's yeah. literally <laughs> it. it's like okay I get it I get it right let's go <laughs> yeah. I quite like all the retro cribbing stuff up to this point to be fair um, it's a very useful character to have around mm-hmm. in that she can turn into absolutely anything but it's like it's smart like using her to escape and fooling all the guards and turning into various things then turning into a big box for Lister to hide in like she's a solid snake <laughs> but he goes to sleep instead what was that noise? Stilly and I eyes says I can, I can also see the comedy in the twist ending of them boarding the very ship they were trying to escape from which I agree I really I really like that as a, as a punchline it's a shame that Doug resorts to using the word somehow to explain it somehow we wind up on it <laughs> it feels very best guessed doesn't it well, what it is it's Lister making an incorrect assumption it's Lister thinking oh I recognise that ship it's one of those it's one of yeah. the ships that goes you know from to whatever supply planet it is Whereas he's just got it wrong. That's the somehow. Yeah. Like, Lister fucks it up. Yeah, yeah. Just when he was starting to self-actualise and, like, believe in himself, he fucks it up. (laughs) Which is very, you know, that's very realistic. Like, he just says, oh, I've just realised where I knew this ship from. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bit, it's a little bit tossed off. Chapter six is the first time in this part that we've seen the rest of the crew other than Lister. And it's like, it's a quarter of the way into the part, or like halfway into this yeah. section of the mm. part it seems like uh, a strange thing and they're in deep sleep in between their adventures uh which is part sirens which is also like obviously at the start of this book it's a bit sirens uh but also crisis in crisis they reveal that they often go into stasis when they you know they've got a long journey to make and that's exactly what they're doing here yeah yeah it is the shortest example of this that we've seen. Like I always assume that they only really do that if they physically have to, if it's hundreds of years. But it, um, it, this is only for a few months. It just seems quite yeah. liberal use of it. Um, seems like a lot of effort to go to, really, when you could be noodling about and making sure everything's okay. But but what was it? Yeah. What was it you were saying, Danny? The um... oh, the the hanging thing about the, the the podcast was that we were not sure whether I'd assumed that Crichton knew. Yeah. That Lister was not the real Lister, but it seems from this chapter, it seems to suggest that he didn't know. At all. He was just he doing no dramatic no. pause. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He he wasn't thinking you're not really Lister because if he was, then we we're in Crichton's head at the moment when he realizes, and it would have yeah. would have mentioned it. And he also we're led to believe wasn't thinking about the DNA machine because later on we'll see that that was a spontaneous decision that he makes. Yeah. Um. So, so yeah. So he was he was just doing it for dramatic effect. He was doing it for when he paused. Effect, yeah. So we just yeah. read it. Doug was writing a, a TV script, I think, in that moment. Yeah, I like the creeping realization that he has, and and how he finds out, you know. But it's kind of robbed of its tension a little bit. The fact that we haven't really seen the <laughs> the effects of Evil Lister being among the crew, because I guess like if that was allowed to play out too far, then he would just end up kill, killing everyone anyway. So yeah. like it's mm. it kind of had to cut it off before it had the chance to. That's why they had to go into deep sleep so that Lister Take wasn't evil. Lister wasn't 
being evil amongst the crew because surely if they'd have spent five months in his company they'd have figured it out yeah so this was like maybe it was evil lister that suggested it because also he uses it to heal his hands and feet uh he yeah. leaves it somehow yeah <laughs> again somehow he isolates his hands and feet <laughs> he isolates his hands and feet from deep sleep so they're progressing in real time yeah <laughs> while the rest of him is frozen his hands and feet are progressing in real time while his heart um isn't makes perfect yeah. sense <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> so they should just drop off yeah, from just, oxygen just starvation huge blood clots <laughs> oh. black puddings god no that's worse <laughs> black oh my god oh that's a horrible <laughs> he holds up his hand and reveals five black puddings <laughs> around a burger <laughs> oh it's a beef burger for the hand <laughs> <laughs> Again, you don't dig too deep into this stuff because it falls apart the second you think about no, it. But yeah, God, the idea of to. having your hands are now older than the rest of your body. <laughs> the problem with that is, is, it is possible when you're consuming a particular bit of media or whatever. It's like, oh, don't think, don't you know, don't analyze it too deeply. Just go along with it and enjoy yeah. it. But when when you're watching, when you're reading or watching sci-fi, especially sci-fi that's trying to be serious sci-fi like this is, and succeeding a lot of the time is that it encourages you to think deeper about some yeah. of the things some of the technology or what are some of the ideas yeah. and when it's encouraging you to do that and then as soon as you do you hit a brick wall it's like that's where the problem mm. comes in it's not like we're looking for problems here you know you can't write serious sci-fi and just toss something like that off you've got to give it a little bit of lip service <laughs> oh there's, <laughs> there's a lot of lip service in this <laughs> section of the book i mean there's a lot of continuity to tie up things i i like the two appendices yep. thing yeah list of being born with two appendixes uh, just because, like at that stage, series six was very new, and it was like everyone was pointing out, "Hey, he just had his appendix out twice." Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> Doug's like, "Right, you fuckers, he had two appendixes." <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> it also mentions that he has an artificial earlobe. It does that. That erases the problem I had in the last one. Which yeah, is that we were moaning about that last time. Yeah, we wouldn't recognise Lister because he had half his yeah. ear missing, but he's got an artificial earlobe. That Dave just says, "Why the fuck would you need an artificial earlobe?" <laughs> Well, you know, I mean... Cosmetic. Yeah, cosmetic, it just, you know, yeah. Who said that, sorry? Uh, Dave. No, Dave. (laughs) We can then assume, it doesn't mention the other identifying things like U equals BTL and stuff, which is mentioned by someone. But it's to be assumed that all of that's been patched up because we're in the future and, you know, you can cosmetically patch yourself up, you know, in certain ways. Give yourself a false earlobe so people don't meet you and say where's your earlobe mate <laughs> it's as simple as that really isn't it it's being able to be to feel normal yeah international debris points out talking of um continuity and things making absolute sense within the same um report about lister it mentions the starfleet and the space corps yeah at this stage we just don't know who works for who what's going we just, on we just don't know we just don't know in my head, Space Corps is the overarching thing. Starfleet is a division within the Space Corps. Or the other way around. the opposite in the last yeah. one we mentioned it, so fuck it. Yeah. Because, yeah, it, it's within the report where it's the psychiatrist report on uh, Evil Lister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says, I was curious as to how a personality such as Lister's was able to have passed the initial intake committee and been accepted into the Starfleet. 
doesn't answer that. It just points out that <laughs> this is a, a thing that shouldn't have happened that makes no sense and just leaves it at that. Later on, to go back to another thing that we complained about in the last one, about how there shouldn't have been a floating lake in Siberia when the artificial gravity went off. Yes. Crichton mentions that as well. When Alternative Lister tells him what's happened, Crichton just says, well, no, that should, there shouldn't have been a floating lake there. And he says, oh, well, yeah, there was a bit of power left in the oxygen unit or something, and that's why <laughs> happened so like, either mention that sooner like mention that when the thing is happening in the previous <laughs> chapter or just don't mention it at all because you've just pointed out the problem and then just gave a, a useless hand wavy uh, solution to it yeah. i mean the explanation is not a terrible explanation it's enough to kind of go eh, that's potentially plausible but mm, i'm not really sure it's a sort of like an explanation you'd put in if you were trying to explain something from the previous book. So you've had chance to have to have complaints at you from fans, and then you're like, "All right, fine, I'll answer this." Not the last chapter. You know? That's the exact problem I have because yeah, yeah it's it, Lister's two appendixes is oh shit, I made a mistake yeah, previously. This is the explanation. This is oh, I made a mistake in the last chapter. Why don't I just go and edit the last chapter? <laughs> yeah. This book has not been released yet. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the the total amount of time that Evil Lister spends with our crew awake is very little indeed because he's gone. Yeah. yeah, he is gone. He's definitely gone. He has been taken by the Kinetowari and will not return. Yes, that's quite funny. No spoilers for future podcasts. Yeah, and the Kinetowari coming back and attacking them is very a robberous. Yeah, yeah, and it made me kind of it twigged with me that this book is a lot closer to series seven than it is to series six. Yeah. Yes. Um, in terms of the way it feels. And obviously part of that is that it's a Doug solo thing. But I think Series 7 is also attempting to do the same sort of stuff that Last Human is, of being a little bit more serious and dramatic and not being an out-and-out comedy. Like, Series 7 moves away from some of the sitcom tropes. This moves away from being a comedy novel in the way that the first two were. Both of which, as a result, are not as good as when it was a pure comedy. (laughs) But that's by the by. That's Ed the Bye. It's not Ed Bye's fault. Series 7. But yeah. <laughs> is um, now a Chekhov's wife. <laughs> Chekhov's gorilla. <laughs> she knocks alternate Lister out and carries him off on her shoulder and Crichton has a little chuckle to himself at the thought of evil Lister being raped. <laughs> and then he realises there's a massive fire. So that's calm. <laughs> There's a lot happens in a short space of time. Here. Yeah. So yeah, it's like, like evil list is gone. It's like, and it. then Crichton, I'm paraphrasing. Then then Crichton realised the massive fire that had been started by the blasters, and it said a fire that was now impossible to put out. And that feels like that doesn't feel like an internal thought from Crichton. That feels like the author talking to the reader. By the way, this fire is impossible for him to put out, so it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very special fire. It's a special fire. And in fact, Dave makes a very good point, because in Chapter 7, after they've plunged into the lava ocean and the, there was a, a, there's a sudden temperature problem aboard the ship, which, may I remind you, is very similar to having a fire on the ship, they have a load of sprinklers <laughs> that they just turn on. So why didn't you do that before? <laughs> Those sprinklers might have been useful putting out the fire earlier. Less sense by the page, Dave says. I think that's not the last time he says that phrase. Do we feel like maybe the book is starting to fall apart, logic-wise? Pretty much. It seems to 
flit about. There's a lot of really big things that happen really quickly. It's that kind of breathless storytelling that we've criticised um, the yeah. Dave era for on occasion. I think Can of Worms has been used it, and it's like, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Yeah. And there's no time spent to explore these things. It's just constantly events, plot is happening, and then more plot, and then more plot. But then it just zips by at such a pace that the details of it are sketchy, yeah. and it's really jarring and hard to get your head around. And it's more excusable if you know, you're rushing to get to a particular good bit like or a bit that you've got clear in your head as a like, oh, I just want to get us there so we can do a really good bit but then often they hear uh, the rushing and rushing happens and then you slam into the credits and um, yeah. and then it's <laughs> over I honestly can't remember what the second half of this chapter ends up being like I think it does calm down a little bit because it feels like he's desperately trying to set everything up you know the rage the, the titular rage yeah and everything like that. So I think it does start to calm down a little bit, but right now it's just mile a minute. Getting all the pieces into place for yeah. the main story to kick in. Yeah, in terms of... Um, <laughs> I've just noticed a comment, sorry, that made me chuckle, uh, which was Pete Part 3. I pretty much detest all of the Cats' uh, similes in Series 6, which I disagree with. Uh, but Pete says, it's thicker than me is the absolute bottom-of-the-barrel crap. <laughs> <laughs> Then, Whereas International Debris says, it's thicker than me, made me laugh. <laughs> the, the interesting thing about this is that this is definitely Series 7 cat, yes. not Series 6 cat, because Series 6 cat would have been too proud to admit that he's stupid. Yeah. Mm. But Series 7 cat, for some reason, seems to hang a light on the fact that he doesn't know anything. Yeah, uh, Series 6 cat would have been, is thicker than my platforms, or something that's actually funny. <laughs> series 7 cat absolutely is it's thicker than me because it's like it just feels very tossed off it feels very 7 I think that's a that's a really good point that really like the difference between 6 and 7 cat is that like he's everything he says has exactly the same shape it's just that there's less refinement to it almost like you know yeah. um, I don't like thicker than me really either I feel like that's turned up somewhere else as well it's thicker than me or something very, very similar to that. It's just almost like it's like the simile has ended too soon. It's like it's just mm. like, oh, that'll do, you know. Not to have what is a throwaway Single cat word. simile. There is something in this chapter. I'm going to read this out and I'll talk you through my journey with it when I read it. It probably don't matter now, Rimmer grimaced. Why would Rimmer say it don't matter? That feels <laughs> wrong. Rimmer would say it doesn't matter. Rimmer never says it don't matter. Mm. It probably don't matter now, Rimmer grimaced. Chances are we're all going to be char-grilled in about 30 seconds anyway. If we have to abandon ship, my suits go with the women and children. Yep. Wait a minute. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> They've attributed a cat line to Rimmer there. Yeah. So it don't matter. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> the, cat, the cat would say that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a bit sloppy, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> It's done in a way that really sticks out as well because you immediately, like, your, your brain screeches to a halt reading that because I know I've made the yeah. exact same note here mainly because the start of the quote doesn't sound like Rimmer so you can't say, oh, the first part is Rimmer and the second part is Cat because mm. it's clearly the whole thing yeah. is Cat. Mm. Just to have a positive, still in it says, despite the book's faults, Doug was still capable of evocative writing at times, and they quote, The sky looked like Van Gogh's palette on a bad day, furious hues of reds, oranges and yellows, all whipped to the point of frenzy. 
Beneath the sky, a sea of molten lava was in an equally irascible mood. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, yeah. It's nice. And that's the thing. I can't, despite all the criticisms that we've made, and despite how frustrating it is at times, it is still a bit of Dugnella writing. There's still a lot to enjoy about this book. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's just the difference between this and Infinity and BTL is stark. Yeah. But even a bad bit of Doug writing is still good writing. Well, it's slightly based on timelines, but like um, I think I can't remember who it was, so apologies to whoever it was. But um, they speculated that due to the time between the last human still being a thing and this being released was so short, it almost mm. feels like Doug wrote this incredibly quickly for a novel, and yeah. that certainly does feel like the case. Like if I feel like if this had another year to cook, it would be. Mm so like transformatively different you know and better it does feel like there's a lot of rushing going on which is a shame because there's so many good ideas in here yeah yeah by the way said and then you know rob had a bit longer and his book is significantly better than this i would say in my opinion and that is kind of the origin of the truism of um Mm. rob was the funny one rob was the good writer doug wasn't and it's because of these books and I feel like maybe they both had very different situations in which they had to write them. Doug was the one writing the book that was late and under contract, and Rob was the one writing the extra one, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a little less pressure. But complete guessing, complete guessing. But Doug had a bigger pull to pick from, it seems, from the plots that have been used. Doug took the lion's share. Oh, I see what you mean. So you think, yeah, he took the ideas of the third book. This next chapter takes two episodes and combines them, basically. Of DNA and quarantine, in a really cool way, actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it works. Really it's works. Good. Yeah. Because previously in this book, we've criticised it for whenever there's been bits from that have been taken from TV, it's literally just been transplanted. It hasn't been, you know, it's, it's not been taking the essence of an idea and doing something new with it, which was a hallmark of the first two novels. Whereas this bit definitely does that. I mean, there are some weird bits in, like, particularly with the stuff that's based on DNA. It's weird because Lister's not there and Kachansky is. Yeah. Some of the bits of dialogue that are taken don't quite work in the same way. And also the pairings are different. So rather than just substituting Lister for Kachansky, they do it so that Crichton and Kachansky go off together and Kat and Rimmer go off together. And that feels foolish because you're putting the two clever, competent, useful ones together and putting the idiot and the coward together. (laughs) It's never going to (laughs) work. So Lister being replaced with Rimmer just about works, although it probably would have worked better if like the dialogue had been rewritten, just so you weren't triggering the same like memories in our heads while we're reading it of like yeah. oh it's weird that Rimmer's saying Lister's lines here. But uh, later on when Kachansky ha- is saying things that were clearly written for Lister <laughs> it, <laughs> like with about poker and and rummy and stuff, it just it But yeah. at least she was allowed in. At least she was allowed into an episode bit. Yeah, you know, <laughs> because one of the main characters is missing. Yeah, he's indisposed. There's a space. <laughs> There's a thing that can only ever be four crew members <laughs> yeah. in a comedy scene. Anyway, that's what time. Doug knows how to uh, how to write. <laughs> four is the maximum. So yeah, first of all, we're with Kachansky and Crichton as they go rummaging around and they find the hundreds of vials of mm. um, of viruses, which is a a cool image. It's good. Mm. There's a weird bit though. <laughs> Which and maybe I missed something. I'm not sure, but Kachansky says like it took us an hour just to find that one vial, and we've only got five hours left. Five hours left for what? 
I don't think at any point prior to that they mentioned any kind of time limit. It's almost like if there was a bit a line at the beginning saying, like, we've got to get out of here quick because we've got six hours before yeah. the ship becomes unstable or whatever. But there's none of that. So, there's no mention before or after of a time limit. And it seems like they, they after this, they spend hours on the ship and do loads of stuff. The closest we've got to a clue is later on they said, we've now got a certain amount of oxygen, like oxygen for a few days. So I think this five hours is they were going to run out of oxygen in five hours. And then later on they find more oxygen. They find more. Yeah, but that's the closest I've got. <laughs> well, then they should have said that. Yeah. <laughs> We've only got five hours before the oxygen runs out. But also, the, the, this is where the tautology comes in because it says uh, inside the vial it was totally harmless, just a single molecule of DNA nucleic acid. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. <laughs> it's, like, it's like pin number. Or... <laughs> yeah, and it, ha- it had a pin number written on the side. Yeah. that you take to an ATM machine. There's so much going on in this chapter because then we go into Rimmer's head for a bit. Is remembering his Z-Shift days and Magruder and that feels like, it feels so long ago that he's flashing back to the events of the first part of Infinity. Yeah, It's like the equivalent of in Series 7 where they have a pre-accident flashback mm. and it's the first time we've seen pre-accident Red Dwarf since Series 1 or 2. Uh, yeah, it's a not unwelcome but an odd thing to do. And the the new backstory for Magruder that she was in love with him. She knew exa- she didn't think he was called Norman. <laughs> she knew exactly who he was, but then she managed to convince herself that they never went out with each other, and she she just invented it as a fantasy in her head. That's really sad and tragic. But it works well. It's just another notch of tragedy for Rimmer that's just like, if he just didn't do that one thing, if he hadn't have thrown that piece of paper in the bin, he wouldn't have died. If he hadn't have decided to comb his hair in a different way, he wouldn't have died. You know, if he hadn't, if he, if he had just rang Magruder, his life would have been very different. It's like all these yeah. tiny little things that make massive differences to Rimmer. So, yeah. That they both thought the other one wasn't interested, but they both were. Because they're both yeah. peas in a pod, they're both very similar people, and so they both had their brains defeat themselves, which is exactly yeah. what. Like that is Rimmer's Suddenly, character, isn't it? We've never learnt much about Magruder at any point, really. Well, uh, no, but, but we, we're to assume, closest, yeah, with yeah, this that, like, this, you know, from this, these few paragraphs, that's yeah, the conclusion yeah, that we spirit. that we're led to yeah. come to. If Rimmer had a physical job aboard the ship, a hundred percent, he would have had some sort of accident that left him concussed, because that's just what would happen. The international debris makes a good point here about the new Magruder backstory. It's a lot warmer and at the same time much, much more tragic. I agree. I'm just not sure about the fact that effectively Lister is to blame. Does the character um, any favours? So again, this is like, this is giving Rimmer a legitimate reason for having his bitter thoughts, like um, having a legitimate Mm. reason for being bitter about his brothers because of the implant. Like giving him a real understandable reason kind of undermines the neuroses of the character which yeah. i think is an interesting point another issue with it as the backstory is that if magruder has convinced herself that she never slept with rimmer never had a relationship with rimmer how does she then tell michael that rimmer is his dad well i mean that would be an issue if you subscribe to the same universe theory <laughs> well this is the problem that i have with if you're it one of those same universes if you're one of those same universes yeah <laughs> that's the problem is that all the evidence is pointing to the fact that magruder comes from a different universe to our rimmer and mm. that is worse that makes for a far less dramatic story well the only logical explanation is that this is not as good as it could be 
my interpretation is, is that this Magruder relationship happened in both universes. The difference being is that in Michael's universe, they didn't have this ridiculous situation where they convinced each other that the other didn't like them. And so they carried on the relationship and had a kid. And then I think it might get this explained a bit more a bit later on, but then Magruder leaves Red Dwarf, etc. Whereas in our universe, it doesn't happen. So the kid never happens. But the relationship did happen to a certain point in both. Mm. And then River is confronted with the fact that he's got a kid. Oh my God, I don't know. I feel like this might get explained in the next episode. Well, let's but hope I also so. feel like it fucking won't. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it does, because I'm yeah. really confused. Because the, the, I think there was a big old debate about this in the comments that it was too complicated for us to turn into snappy... Um, quotes to read out but you can read back in the old thread because it's just the only way that it makes sense is for it to be the least emotionally dramatically satisfying explanation and that's a shame so let's leave it for now and hope that we can (laughs) conclude this in a positive way in our next book club this is a long running debate I mean this started in the first episode right when we were talking about the the history of the belt and um, the origins of everyone (laughs) spit roasting the snug (laughs) jury there it is (laughs) just had to get it in there it's completely irrelevant so anyway we rejoin Cat and Rimmer and DNA happens Mm. with the do nothing press nothing etc but Rimmer is a, a hologram and therefore not made of meat like Lister is and they just do another hand wave that somehow (laughs) do they actually use the word somehow in this I can't quite remember says the computer must have managed to do a transposition swapping hard light for genes I don't understand I don't understand oh yeah I don't understand if you don't understand Crichton what chance have we got (laughs) if you're going to do that as well like there's even the story of Crichton possibly oh yeah you know we know Crichton becomes human later then why is mm. there not a discussion of Rimmer becoming an alive human being again, you know? Or yeah. maybe he likes being a hard like hologram at this point, but like it's possible to change him, so I had that same sort of conclusion in my head that yeah, they could just use this to make Rimmer human, but actually maybe being a hard like hologram is better because mm. he's kid touch and feel and everything, but he's effectively yeah. immortal and can't be harmed. But Rimmer should have that debate, like that should be should totally occur to Rimmer. You can use yeah. it to make me human and for him to make that decision. Yeah. I mean at least with Crichton we've got like his brain's part organic, which I think has only ever been said in the context of explaining how you can change his DNA <laughs> in <Yeah>. DNA. <laughs> Quote in here that I want to. If there was ever a film of Red Dwarf and they ever revisited the DNA machine, if this I would love to see because it says his eyes darted around looking for some sign of Rimmer. He wasn't there. Nothing was there apart from a chicken. A chicken that was glowering at him furiously. <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> that sounds like that'll be a good comic. Uh... Or like an anime with a chicken and like the blurred background. I want to see an incredibly furious chicken <laughs> with a little H on his forehead. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's the thing as well where in the episode they turn Lister into a chicken and then accidentally mm-hmm. turn him into a hamster and then back to human. Here, there's hundreds of them. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. They accidentally like Crichton cycles through hundreds of them trying to get the human one back. <laughs> At one point, there's a a, a, a Rimaroo which is uh, part rimmer, part kangaroo. And I yeah. pictured that uh, as looking exactly like the Rolferoo, the uh, now... <laughs> now disgraced marsupial. <laughs> now disgraced oh, marsupial cartoon. 
<laughs> from the 1990s. Google it if you don't. Know. Oh god. Um, yeah, no, that's a good. And then yeah, uh, Rimmerfant stampeding <laughs> around. Yeah, the thing is, I. How does it fit back in the tube? That's exactly what I was going to say. So they ranged in size from a Rimmerfant, which plodded around the chamber and made rather a mess. And I was like. Like Blue Peter. So that tube grows depending on the size of the animal, right? Because it assumes that it's like it just drops down, it's the size of a human. And then, you know, this DNA is making a lot of assumptions that the thing it drops down onto is the size, exactly the size of the tube, you'd assume. Yeah. yeah. Especially you know, in on a ship that's got these various gulfs, and, like the snug giraffe is huge and everything. It's got a series of tubes, like Russian dolls. <laughs> Going back to the discussion of from the end of our last dwarf cast is this Crichton only now hatching the plan to DNA himself to make him human or was that always in the back of his mind I'm leaning towards it always being like it, the, the thought first occurred to him um, and that was the cause of the pause the cause of the pause was the he pause. was thinking there is a possibility I could use this for something because that is presumably what literally everyone would think when being told, oh, by the way, there's um, there's some technology that could basically make you a god. You would immediately mm. think, oh, how am I going to use this for my benefit then? Uh, and he's having that exact same thought. And it's only now Even that Crichton. he realises, oh, yeah, I could actually use this. Like, this would work for me. Maybe since he's tested it and used it, he understands it now. Well, like he, before, it was just a case of it oh, working nice, on Rimmer, it? and then presumably yeah. convinced him. Oh, if it works on Rimmer, it'll definitely work on me. Because you don't even need to convert my hard light into genes. No, so somehow <laughs> Holly did it. So we're nearly there, guys. We're nearly, we're nearly at the end of this part of the book. I have two notes that I wrote for chapter nine, which is where we're back with Lister, our Lister. And, and Rita's cabin as they go onto the newly terraformed planet. I have two notes. The first is, for fuck's sake, will everyone stop having sex with Lister while he sleeps? Which <laughs> <laughs> is, uh, in, the, in the night, uh, Rita's cabin assumes the form of Kachansky and starts... Like, just, like, there's, there's issues with consent in this book. Yeah, really. <laughs> we'll probably leave it that. <laughs> My other note is, I'm starting to lose all sense of what the fuck's going on. <laughs> Uh, and I don't know whether it was just because I was tired when I was reading this bit, but this, like, where, who are those people that turn up with spears and figures attacking them and, and stuff? Well, it's Michael and then presumably survivors from the... Mayflower. Mayflower, yeah. yeah. And then other than that, the other volunteers get unceremoniously killed off by the Rage, which hasn't been given a name yet, I don't think, which mm. seems to be destroying everything that has been created on this terraform planet, like, crops are being destroyed in the wake of this rage. This is the gestalt thing that was created with the yeah. souls of the innocent. No, with the souls of the guilty. No, this is the innocent. Oh, for fuck's sake. The, 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 the guilty ones, they're, they're, they're <laughs> long since fucked off. That planet went That was the what they called the black planet and they said it was... Oh, that planet's, planet's gone. Yeah, okay. that planet's gone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Lister's batch of people who are also the innocents... Innocent. Yeah, have yeah. been sent down to see whether it's all fine. Worked. Yeah, because and the last lot disappeared. Because yeah. the last lot disappeared. Yeah, and so presumably we'll come to this in the next part. But presumably Magruder and his lads were in the previous batch of prisoners. They've somehow gone to this. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I can't remember how he gets from the lava planet to this planet, or whether they're the same planet. Tell me, Wemi. 
Uh, Let's probably leave that till next week. Yeah, <laughs> we've got more. Uh... Yeah, we, we weren't really intending this read through to be like, oh, we read through it essentially for the first time. But that's what this book <laughs> has turned into. This is essentially our first reading. It's just so dense that you can't possibly remember all this stuff. So the other colonists, I guess you would call them, but the, the others that were sent from um, Siberia, all ended up killing each other by being under the influence of the rage. It, mm. it, that's a bit tossed off because. Clearly, he just wanted rid of those extra characters because now that we've, we're with Michael, yeah. we've got that situation. But one thing I did want to point out, and it's something that Dave points out as well, the quote, and then a cliche happened. <laughs> I, I can't figure out whether that is excellent writing or absolutely <laughs> terrible writing. <laughs> well, it's kind of hanging a lampshade on the fact that Doug has written a cliche. Written a cliche, yeah. He's done it in an amusing way, so I kind of I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The, the lampshade, the lampshade is forgiven. Dave thinks it's funny. <laughs> no, it is. It's good. Yeah, then <laughs> a cliche, which is when Michael's lads suddenly surround them. And so finally, arbitrarily finally, because we just decided to cut off that, our, our section halfway through this chapter, but suddenly we get quarantine. Yeah. With Kachansky in place of Lister doing the cards and everything, and we get introduced to Chekhov's broccoli. <laughs> Kachansky using the luck virus to pluck out vials of viruses says that this fast growing broccoli might come in useful at some point. And I again I can't remember No, like <laughs> whether it does or not, but I'm looking forward to finding out how. My reaction to reading this is that I was reading it and she said, Oh, you know, and I've I pulled this one out as well. Mm, fast growing broccoli and I was like, Oh right, yeah, the flash fast growing broccoli and then I immediately thought, Hang on, what the fuck? What does it get used for? What <laughs> Again, I've thought of that differently. I just thought of that as being the luck virus has worn off. Oh yeah. All maybe. right. <laughs> <That's pretty good. laughs> but it turns out that it hasn't. So if, if my if if my histo uh, chip <laughs> serves me correctly, when we get to the end of this book, we are not going to be in any of a clearer position about what happened in the previous pages because I seem to remember the very ending of this book completely baffled me like I thought I was being thick originally but like the the, the certain levels of abstraction about how you interpret it and what happens or what is supposed to happen so we can't rule out the possibility that it is you being thick it could be me being thick but the last three episodes of this book club have told me is that maybe it isn't me being thick no one can remember because no one remembers this book <laughs> so we'll all find out together. This book is the uh, the silence from Doctor Who. And as soon as you turn away from it, you've forgotten everything that happened. Yeah, but the silence were good. Yeah. <laughs> so let's leave it there, I think, because we accidentally gave ourselves a nice couple of cliffhangers with Lister meeting Magruder being one and Crichton turning into a human being the other one. So I think completely by accident, we've found the midpoint. <laughs> like, yeah. we arbitrarily went literally halfway through this chapter and it turns out that that is kind of end of part one, here's part two. Yeah, yeah definitely. On the subject, because we haven't really talked about Crichton actually doing the deed, Pete Part 3 says on this, DNA seems like a good choice for the novel treatment. It's character heavy and there's more you can do with the idea than they managed in 28 minutes. However, here it just feels crowbarred in and hampered by the fact that Crichton apparently desires to become human as opposed to becoming one accidentally. It just seems uncharacteristically selfish for Crichton to do this to himself when they're in pretty grim predicament. And I think that's very correct. Yeah, and that was kind of the issue that I had with the dramatic pause. And like you said, it's a natural thing for people 
to think, oh, how can I use this thing to my advantage? But Crichton isn't people. Yeah, Crichton's not people. Yeah, I don't buy that that's Crichton's first thought of, like, I'm going to use this to my advantage. Mm, yeah. And I think this, this feeling will only increase um, in the next episode when, obviously, we we, we deal with human Crichton a lot more. Mm. Um, it's quite I'm possible that this is, a, this is a, a story fragment that the end of this book can do without... Um, based on my memories, but I guess we'll see next time, won't we? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one more part to go where either we'll realise, oh yeah, no, this all makes sense, this is brilliant, or we'll be more confused and annoyed than we currently are. It seems that most of our um, readers slash listeners have decided <laughs> that, that they can't be asked with this book anymore. I hope, I hope <laughs> we see you all in part four. <laughs> yeah, but hey. There's still a bit of business to deal with now, uh, so let's just have a little a little breather, and we'll come back for some small points. And so it's time for us to uh, take our readers' small points into our mouths, and <laughs> and ejaculate them for you. <laughs> Or something. I don't know. We've done a lot of these podcasts now. <laughs> it's getting harder. We've run out, we've run out, of, we've run out of knob jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? 20 years it took us. Again, as usual, we've kind of gone through quite a lot of the comments, but there's a few that we've, we've held back as small points. National Debris points out a couple of bits of out-of-character dialogue that happen while the crew are exploring the Mayflower. One being, Rimmer nodded courteously, thanks, Crity. Weird. Who are you and what have you done with our rimmer? <laughs> uh, International B and Dave both pointed out that Crichton would not say hubba hubba. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's like hubba hubba, what do we have here then? It's what's that? That's like that doesn't sound like anything. Who is that meant to be for? That's not even slight like like thanks Crichty is believable but slightly incongruous. Hubba hubba is just like deranged almost. Yeah. Like why why would <laughs> yeah. that be why would that be That sounds like something Cat would say. Maybe not something yeah, yeah. But the thing Even then. Yeah. Cat would have to have been showing a larger than normal interest in what's going on. Yeah, yeah that'd be clothes or something that would make. He should have said HH. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been better, ironically. HH. That's reminded me of the fact that, again, Doug's use of initialisms and everything. In Series 7, Cat calls Kachansky Officer BB before he calls her Officer Budbabe, because oh, yeah. you can see in the extended version that the, the very first Officer Budbabe was cut. Yeah. So he does he does the abbreviation before the full version. And I remember being, as a kid watching that, thinking I was really confused why he's calling her BB. Yeah, <laughs> very confused by a lot of things that was going on in Series 7. Uh, on a positive note, in terms of language used, still... <laughs> Nides uh, wanted to highlight a delorious rain sprinkled its melancholia as a, a neat poetic way to open a chapter. Isn't that dolorous? Yeah. What did I say? Dolorous. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't know what dolorious is, but kind of like that. Dolorious but... is um, time machine like. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a rain with gullwing doors that open up. <laughs> Basically, yeah. It doesn't have. There's a, a character in um, a Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones called Dolorous Ed. And because a lot of people encountered this character first in the books, the, there's a lot of people that called him Dolores Ed. In fact, the guy that reads the audiobooks 
for a whole book calls him Dolores Ed instead of Dolores Ed. Like he's <laughs> like oh god, yeah, for that particular reason. But it's one of those words. It's like hyperbole. <laughs> Chameleon. <laughs> Dave mentions that. Starbuck has a nose cone now. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was weird. Sort of strange. Like I'm pretty sure that the the ship had been seen by this point, so it was obvious that it shouldn't have a nose cone. Yeah, but it's sort of like cutting through the clouds. It was like unless they've just retrofitted a, a nose cone to it, which doesn't make any sense. Well, part of the reason why this book works, or like the books in general work, is that after the first two, it kind of they do rely on TV knowledge, so there's no way in hell that Doug would be making the decision to like completely change how Starbuck's supposed to look in your I mean, Starbuck's nose would have been fine. You've yeah. got that. Just yeah. like Series Doug. 6, which was like set on Starbuck. Like, you're, you're not changing that, are you, at this point? Yeah, um, and they're about to go into Series 7, which is almost entirely Series yeah. Um But apparently <laughs> yeah. he did. Apparently he did, because he's put a nose cone on, on Starbuck. <laughs> I have a couple of small points. At one stage, Cap grabs Rimmer's light bee, reaches inside him and pulls out his light bee and bangs it on the table. A, that's harsh. Yeah. <laughs> B, it's hard light. You can't do that with hard light. Yeah, unless he's mal- malfunctioning because of the heat. Mabes. I have a follow-up small point to this that's only just occurred to me. So everyone's getting too hot and then the sprinklers go off and Rimmer's light bee actually is helped by the sprinklers going off and it getting mm. wet. When they land on the bottom of the seabed, he, his light bee is put in a waterproof container to be carried across. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you can't expect things to be consistent from you know. There's a whole like three three pages between those things. <laughs> I think the inference is there is that temperature is a bigger problem for the light bee than water. Maybe yeah, and also I guess it's like a watch, isn't it? There's a difference between water resistant and waterproof. Yeah, you'd, yeah. Have, you'd have to be waterproof to be underwater, but you only have to be water resistant to deal with. Splashes. It's that water resistant is a, is a pressure thing. So yeah. it's usually it will, it will repel water up to a certain depth, and then it will no longer be resistant. Yeah, they are at the bottom of an ocean. Yeah. yeah. Although pressure doesn't seem to be a problem for the the cat. Pressure did seem to be a problem for the writing. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, P part three says about the personality report that it says and I quote I agree with Dr Thompson that his personality disorder is caused by the genetic and environmental influences so this is meant to be our Lister with just a different foster family Mm. again what is the novel saying about Lister? Mm. Fair question Yeah we talked about that a bit last time like how are they so different? We came to the conclusion that Lister was sort of already different by the time he made this decision Yeah, and yet it seems to be this decision that seems to have made the split when that's yeah. not actually the case. I don't think they are truly genetically identical. I think there must be some difference there in their genetics mm. because Lister at a young age had to make a decision about which foster parents to go with. Evil Lister chose the bad foster parents, the Thorntons, Thorntons yeah. uh, as opposed to Gary Wilmot. And <laughs> the living with the Thorntons made it worse and exacerbated the problem and turned him into the evil version that we know. But there was already some difference there in order for that decision to be made different. In exactly. The it's got to be, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dave says, the description of the silver puddle feels very much like the T-1000. We mentioned that. But it makes me wonder whether Doug dropped that line into Chapter 3 about the symbiomorph being able to become complex machines with moving parts to distinguish it from 
the liquid metal terminator <laughs> yeah. which can't do that yeah. so he's like he mentions it specifically as like a yeah but it's, it's not the same because that one can do that one can do complex machines it's not just knives yeah. and stabbing weapons screw, screw the, screw, yeah I mean there's a reason why I think the T-1000 can't do complex machines and that is to preemptively plug up a load of plot holes <laughs> Doug has no such qualms <laughs> <laughs> and also because the technology was really fucking difficult <laughs> yeah well yeah also showing that would be um, a little bit my final small point is uh, that there's a, a joke from Quarantine, uh, which is reused, the cheap Martian power packs uh, in relation to the size scan uh, that is mentioned in Quarantine is mentioned here. But it's it's sort of done in a slightly odd way. It's in prose where sort of objectively the, the size scan is described as stupid damn cheap Martian power pack multi-analysis machines. So it's like, uh, I'm not good enough at literary uh, criticism to remember exactly what all the right phrases are, but it makes it like a passive tone of it. Like the the size scan belongs to the cheap Martian power packs yeah. thing. And we're, we're led to believe, like, may, maybe we were wrong with the TV series, but like, yeah, stupid damn cheap Martian power packs implying that it's running out of battery or it's not making yeah. a good connection and so it's not working. But the way he's written that, that can't just be a typo. That is like, so maybe he meant something completely different in the original TV show. Yeah, it's the power packs that are making the size yeah, scan shit. And it's, it's power packed. But that's not even a thing. That's nothing. But then, I don't know. No, is it is in, like, it's been fitted with cheap Martian power packs. It has become cheap Martian power packed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't sound like something any human would like, <laughs> anyone would say. Well, it's a good job because he's not, is he? Yeah. <laughs> not yet, anyway. Well, let's not jump to any conclusions. <laughs> Doug is, though. Doug is, yeah, that's true. Anyway, I think that all that remains is for us to display our small passages to the world. Again, tricky, because nothing really leaps out of being a, a sizzlingly brilliant um, section, but <laughs> we should we should do our best. Uh, and I believe, Capsie, you're first up this week. Chronologically, I am. We are in the president's office or somewhere. I can't remember. <laughs> the president dismissed the manicurist and bayoneted Spinsky with a look. Everyone knows, Bob. All the staff. Everyone. I've got to have an answer. <laughs> Mr. President, we're simply not in a position to give you an accurate prognosis right now. The word is out, Doctor. The economy is going to be crucified. <laughs> oh, give me a minute. <clears throat> I need an answer, and I need an answer today. How long? There's still a whole battery of tests and mountains of data queuing up to be analysed and processed. Then be approximate, damn it. A tight smile flashed on Sabinski's face, which he hoped would cushion the news. How long? Yes, how long, damn you? How frigging long? About 400,000 years, sir. Nixon slumped into his chair. Is that all? It appears that exploding those thermonuclear devices so close to the sun... Yeah, 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 Dixon said testily. Almost almost certainly weakened the gravitational attraction of the hydrogen molecule. <laughs> I made a mistake, okay? I'm sorry. And the only reason I read that out was to do a future armor Nixon impression. <laughs> well, we're going to dub that in later. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm reduced to. <laughs> reduced? I think I'm next. I'm going to do a bit of Rita's cabin and uh, and Lister's initial interaction. There was a slurping noise and the symbiomorph started to morph again. 
Lister was suddenly aware of the most excruciating smell, an aroma that was so repugnant he had to clutch under the table to keep his balance. He looked across at the steaming yellow mountain and saw the symbiomorph was now sitting there defiantly as a pile of yak dung. The guards screamed at the excrement. Stop it! Change! Please him! You hear me? Change! The yak dung shook uncontrollably, almost as if it was sniggering. Lister grinned. I've never known a symbiomorph so willful. All the others are broken. You will be too. We will return in half a cycle. If you still refuse to do his bidding, then you will be spayed. Lister watched as the two defeated guards slammed out of the suite. He looked across at the dung and waved his right hand amiably. How's it going? The dung did not reply. The name's Lister. That was quite a performance you just put on. Silence. Look, don't take this personally, man. Or should I call you YD? But isn't there something else you can be? Something that isn't quite so rank as yak dung. How about some moose dung? Silence. Look, you and me haven't got a barney. I'm just asking you to be something a tad more aromatic. The dung morphed into a bouquet of white roses. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. What's this about moose dung? Why? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't get any less bizarre, does it? <laughs> I genuinely quite like Lister and Richard Cribbins, Rita's Cabin's relationship. The fact yeah. that... Lister gives a little grin when he realizes that Retrocrebin is enjoying this. Is she's enjoying being rebellious? Yeah, got a, a defiant streak about, her and I think Lister just really enjoys it. He doesn't even have to show her any of the films he normally would. <laughs> she's an advanced student. Okay, Daniel son. All right, mine. I can fucking find it. Fuck, fuck, find it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so basically, it's a nice kind of self-contained thing. It's played when um, Rimmel was going out with Magruder. The cat walked into the dome, stooped and picked it up. It was a jacket, belonging to a marine named Magruder. Rimmer hated marines. They all thought they were God's gift to soldiering. The cat tossed it to one side and they continued their walk through the crashed ship. As they walked, Rimmer smiled. He dated a girl called Magruder once. He had a bit of a fling with her. He started to remember how they met back on Red Dwarf. They were only a few months out into space, and he'd just finished his duties with Z-Shift and was making his way back to the sleeping quarters when they caught the same lift together. She was pretty. Dark-haired with computer blue eyes. Computer blue eyes is a strange... Yeah. Blue screen of these eyes. eyes. (laughs) Normally shy around attractive women, unusually for him, he'd opened a conversation when he'd inquired why she was wearing a white bandage around her head. Was she a Buddhist or something? (laughs) She smiled and said she'd just been released from the concussion ward. A large piece of machinery had fallen on her from a great height, but she'd made a complete recovery. They'd gone like a house on fire. She found him amusing and attractive and told him so, even asking him to come round to her quarters that evening for supper. Of course, Lister had taken the smeg out of him, saying she'd only dated him because she thought he was someone called Simon. He ignored him. For two and a half days, everything was fantastic. This was the real McCoy. Then, quite suddenly, and for no reason he could work out, Lister's remarks had got to him, so he set out to prove himself that Lister was wrong. He decided not to phone her. He would wait for her to phone him. It was only a little thing, but in some small way it would prove to him that she really did care. Yvonne never phoned. They never dated again. And although they shared nods when they passed in the ship's corridors, they never really spoke ever again. Why had he let it slip? What a schlub. What he didn't know was this. Twenty minutes after he'd left her quarters, Magruder had fainted in the bath. She was kept in the midi quarters overnight, where she'd been convinced that her relationship with him had been a fantasy. 
Something she wanted so desperately, her concussed mind had convinced her was actually taken place. She'd been hung up on him long before the meeting in the lift. The solution was simple. She would wait for Arnold to phone. If he did, she would know it had happened. If not, she would know her mind had played the coolest tricks. He never phoned. They never dated again. And although they shared nods when they passed in the ship's corridors, they never really spoke ever again. Mm. Yeah, Magruder was in love with Rimmer before he'd met her, so... Yeah, it's mm. nice. Yeah. It's such a shame. I can't remember if he actually finds out any of this. God knows what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out next yeah. time on the Red Dwarf Dwarf Cast Book Club from Ganymede and Titan, <laughs> <laughs> which will be concluding uh, Last Human as we read the rest of Part Three. So, for, obviously, from Chapter Eleven onwards. Uh, get your comments in on that if you want to be included in the next edition. Comment on the article for this Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv. Our next podcast, however, will be a commentary for Series 12, Episode 4, Macocracy. Yes, cabin. <laughs> Macocracy. <laughs> okay, I'm glad Doug has ditched this habit of giving things unpronounceable names. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. And there'll also be a fresh batch of waffles uh, served up in our regular section, Waffle Men, in which we discuss any Red Dwarf-related topics you want to throw our way. Uh, so send your suggestions in for that on GNT, or you can tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. Until then... Uh, stay home, stay safe. Stained glass windows are a feature found in many churches. And as always, Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. So speaking of uh, Magruder and his looks, who was it that asked us about? I should have. Oh, um, I put it in day. the. Uh, I did put it in there. So it was. Uh, 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 <laughs> talk about Magruder. <laughs> when you Google Michael Magruder, it comes up with pictures from the. Uh, which DJ was it? Is it It'll have been 19? the second one before last, I think. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I have never thought to look, and it has his dad's got a picture of Henry. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I, I googled the question, so I have a, have a short way. So psychopaths tend to be more manipulative, seen by others as more charming, lead the sem- semblance of a normal life. Shut up, Google. <laughs> The African snail is approximately... Well, do it in the program! <laughs> I don't want <before. laughs>